This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Marianne will be chairing this session in which we'll look at what are we learning. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks, Claire. Did you want me to talk from the stage from there? We're here. Okay, all right. Um, sorry, I'm a bit flustered. We've been on a plane for 110 hours, leaving fog, fog-filled Canberra. So this session is um, what are we learning and what have we learnt? Um, it's a focus on a tradition older than civilization. Storytelling has long been used to entertain, educate, pass on culture and instill still moral values. And storytelling in politics is a relatively new phenomenon, I read, um, heralded by Barack Obama's campaign, but it's uh, an essential thing for us to learn from. So our panellists are going to share with us their work and research on storytelling. Their work is aimed at cutting through the white noise of political, legal and academic rhetoric to reveal the humanity behind issues that are important to us. It will inspire us to use narrative as a vehicle for transforming opinions and bringing lasting change. I'm going to introduce the panellists. Mark Chenery is the founder of Common Cause Australia. Common Cause Australia is dedicated to building a sustainable, equitable and empowered world by identifying and fostering intrinsic values that can lead to real and lasting benefits. Through his work exploring what motivates or develops values such as caring for others and the environment, Mark can offer us insight into how best we can change perspectives, attitudes and actions towards asylum seekers. Alex Frankel from Frankly... He brings a wealth of experience in research, strategy and communications. He uses story-based approach to communication as a means of creating common understanding and enriching connections. Alex seeks to expose the individual impact of legal and political discourse. We're going to start this session hearing from Mark and Alex. After each of their presentations, I'll open the floor for questions. Um, a short question time. And then we're going to move into a discussion question, a discussion session um, with Chantelle Ogilvie-Ellis, whose work has been inspired by the work of Mark and Alex. Chantelle brings a strong background in grassroots community campaigning. Chantelle shares something in common with me in starting her political life in YCS, Young Christian Students. Um, but she went a lot further than I ever did out of St Joseph's Ladies College. She was the coordinator of the large Global Justice Forum at World Youth Day in 2008 and she currently works with Sydney Alliance as an active and inspiring campaign that empowers people to share stories and her campaigning is called Changing the Conversation. So we're going to begin with hearing from Mark Shenry. Sometimes after. Oh, excellent. 
Brilliant, it works. So I'm Mark Chenery, I'm the co-founder of Common Cause Australia. But it was as the head of community engagement uh, for ActionAid Australia that I first came across the Common Cause approach to social change. Uh, and I became so enamoured with the approach, I established an informal network back in 2012 uh, in which we uh, did trainings and workshops with other organisations in order to bring them on board with the Common Cause approach. Um, and at the beginning of last year, I left my job with ActionAid in order to pursue uh, Common Cause full-time through Common Cause Australia. So what is Common Cause? Well, Common Cause is an attempt to answer the question of why. Why do people think and act the way they do? Why do some people recycle while others don't? Why do some people hold racist attitudes while others don't? Why do some people believe we should be uh, welcoming and supportive of asylum seekers and refugees while others really don't? Now, Common Cause draws on decades of research uh, to answer, from the fields of psychology and linguistics in order to answer these questions. And it was first articulated back in 2010 in the Common Cause report, which was produced by a group of environmental and anti-poverty campaigners working together with academics uh, in, the field, in these fields from around the world. And in, the, in short, the report argues that values are an important but often overlooked answer to the question of why. And since then, the ideas in Common Cause have spread around the world, including to Australia, and the purpose of Common Cause Australia is essentially to spread these ideas here and to build a movement of people and organisations dedicated to values-based change. So I'm very pleased to be able to present you these ideas today. So the definition that uh, a lot of psychologists use for values is that values are guiding principles in life that transcend situations, are linked to emotion and are often subconscious. And that the heart of the Common Cause approach is the Schwartz model of values, which was developed by social psychologist Shalom Schwartz using survey responses from over 60,000 people from around the world. And what he did was he added values to the point where they occurred consistently across countries, to the point where it identified 58 values, these 58 values. What he also found is that these values relate to each other in predictable ways. What you see here is the result of a multidimensional scaling analysis, which basically means the closer the, dot, the, the values are to each other on the map, the more closely they are related. The further away they are from each other, the weaker the connection. So in short, if I'm someone who uh, values equality highly, I'm also likely to value broad-mindedness, unity with nature and social justice. And I'm unlikely to value things like wealth, social power and social recognition very highly. Uh, all, all of the, the graphs and maps and so on I'm pre presenting to you, you'll be able to find in, in a resource I'll send you at the end, so don't worry about trying to replicate the map on your papers. Uh, what Schwartz did then is he grouped those 58 values into what he saw as 10 motivational goals, and he named them universalism, benevolence, conformity, tradition, security, power, achievement, hedonism, stimulation and self-direction. Now, there is actually, this map is in your packs, and I really would at this point encourage you to get it out because I'm not going to have it up on the screen the whole time, but I'll be referring to these values, so it'll probably be useful. Now, since Schwartz published his model, hundreds of studies have been conducted to test and refine his theory, many of them exploring the connection between people's values and their attitudes and behaviours. Studies have shown strong correlations between people's values and their attitudes towards a range of social and environmental issues. But more importantly... Studies have also shown a connection between people's values and their actual behaviours. 
Now, there are literally hundreds of studies that have looked into the relationship between values, attitudes, and behaviours, and there's no way we could cover them all in 20 minutes. Um, normally, when we introduce common cause to people from scratch, it's a half-day or a full-day workshop. Um, you should come along to one of those one day. But I've chosen to highlight a few results that I think are particularly relevant to this field. But first, let me introduce a couple of extra groups of uh, values. They are intrinsic and extrinsic values. Intrinsic values are those which are inherently rewarding to pursue. Things like equality, freedom and love. And if you look at your maps, you'll be able to see some of the values contained within those three uh, motivational goals. Extrinsic values are those values which are motivated by external approval or rewards. So things like money, status and success. So let's look at intrinsic values and what they're associated with. People who prioritise intrinsic values have more positive diversity attitudes in general, as well as more understanding of difference, more comfort around difference, and more contact with different groups. Intrinsic values correlate negatively to what are known as system-justifying beliefs. So that's, that means the more importance someone places on these values, the less likely they are to make justifications for, say, inequalities in society. For instance, by believing that certain groups are naturally superior to others. Importantly, intrinsic values are also associated with support for immigration. People who score more highly on universalism, benevolence and self-direction values are more likely to agree that immigrants enhance society and less likely to agree that immigration levels should be capped. But there are also significant differences between the motivational goals within the intrinsic values category. Uh, both benevolence and universalism values uh, are about how we relate to others but there is all, the difference between the two is really about our circle of concern. So benevolence values are associated with concern for people close to you, so your friends, your family, uh, perhaps your community, whereas universalism values extend that circle of concern to uh, the entire human race, as well as animals and other natural uh, parts of the natural environment. As such, universalism is really the sweet spot. It's highly associated with egalitarianism, which means that people tend to see one another as moral equals and equally deserving of the same rights. Universalism values are also associated with positive attitudes towards things like gender equality, and they predict whether people will take action to support human rights generally. Meanwhile, self-direction values are strongly associated with both civic and political action. Extrinsic values, on the other hand, are associated with negative attitudes towards diversity in general and higher levels of prejudice. For example, the higher a person scores on extrinsic values, the more likely they are to agree with the statement, I'm only at ease with people of my own race. Extrinsic values, and power in particular, are related to what is known as social dominance orientation. This revolves around a belief that there are natural hierarchies apparent in the world that actually should be maintained. In such a view, men are superior to women, one ethnic group is superior to another, and so on. They're also likely to agree with statements such as some people or groups of people are simply inferior to other groups. As a result, people who rate highly on extrinsic values express lower concern for the rights of minorities and, in fact, are less likely to support the idea that minorities deserve equal treatment by courts. In fact, power and achievement values predict support for restrictions on human rights. People rated high on extrinsic values are more likely to believe that immigration should be capped and less likely to believe that immigrants enrich a society. And in terms of actual behaviours, we know that people are more likely to express all types of discrimination uh, experience, sorry, all types of discrimination based on disability, gender, gender identity, sexuality uh, and ethnic origin in countries where extrinsic values are particularly uh, 
prioritised. Yet at the same time, people in those countries are less likely to witness discrimination, which basically means in those countries people are more likely to commit acts of discrimination and less likely to see that as discrimination. And finally, although security, conformity and tradition values, um, also collectively known as conservation values, fall outside of the extrinsic intrinsic dictomy, I think they're worth a special mention uh, on this particular issue. These values are associated both with a lower desire to have contact with other groups and higher levels of prejudice. And as with extrinsic values, conservation values are associated with a range of negative attitudes towards minorities and high levels of discriminatory behaviour. Most importantly for the purposes of us today, conservation values are strongly associated with anti-immigrant sentiment. As with extrinsic values, people who prioritise conservation values are much less likely that immigrants, to agree that immigrants enhance society and more likely to suggest that immigration should be capped. In fact, in one recent study that we did, we ranked European countries by their relative security values and we found an incredibly strong correlation with anti-immigrant sentiment which I think is of particular relevance to us here in Australia because although Australia was not part of the, uh, this particular study, it's worth pointing out that in the World Values Survey, which uses data from 2012, security values topped the, uh, the list of values of importance to Australians. And sadly, this actually represents an increase in the priority of security values in Australia compared to 2005, in which they were ranked third behind universalism and benevolence. Now, if you want to explore uh, the connection between particular values and various discriminatory attitudes and behaviours and things related to equality, I recommend you check out this report, which was produced by one of uh, the Common Cause Network organisations, uh, PERC, Public Interest Research Centre. Um, and if you get in touch with me afterwards, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a link. So values matter. They influence our attitudes and our behaviours on a range of issues, from environmental issues to human rights and refugees. But if values are such an important influencer on our attitudes and behaviours in relation to these issues, what does that mean for organisations and advocates in this particular space? Does it mean you only engage with individuals who already prioritise intrinsic values because they're the only ones who are going to support your cause? Or does it mean you broaden out the type of values you try and appeal to so that you're engaging a broader group of people? Or perhaps more ambitiously, does it mean you should actually be trying to influence the values of the society? These are the questions we're now going to turn to. Now, normally when we think about values, we think about them dispositionally. I have these values, you have those values, and people out there have completely different values. Now, as I've explained, one of the interesting findings from Schwartz is that we all have all 58 values. The difference is simply that we prioritise them differently. And this is what we might, might call our values disposition. Our values disposition loads the dice in terms of which values we're going to draw upon in any particular context in terms of forming our attitudes and behaviours. So if I'm someone who values extrinsic values, I'm more likely to support a cap on immigration uh, and I'm more likely to vote for a party that is harsh on refugees. But how are these values shaped in the first place? Well, values, very much like muscles, repeated activation strengthens. The more that people's intrinsic values are activated, the stronger they become over time. And of course, the opposite is also true. The more that people's extrinsic values are activated, the stronger they become over time. In that sense, our overall values dispositions are not fixed, like we sometimes think of them as. Uh, they're actually in a state of constant flux, determined by which values are activated most strongly and most repeatedly. 
Now, typically, the changes in a value's dis disposition are slow and hard to detect, but sometimes they can actually be quite radical. And research shows a value is shaped by our lived experience. No surprise there. Everything from our childhood and education, our job, important life changes, things like having children or moving countries, both of which are associated uh, with possible large changes in values priorities, and of course the media. But they're also influenced by our exposure to civil society, charities, community groups, social movements, people like us. Uh, the civil rights movement in the US, for example, has been credited in the space of a very few years back in the 60s with radically increasing the priority Americans placed on the value of equality. Which brings us to an important point, and it's actually the whole reason I have, have now dedicated my life to Common Cause and to talk to people about the, the value science, and that is how we frame the issues we work on on a day-to-day -day basis plays an important role in actually shaping the cultural values of Australia. So in the long term, the values that we're engaging have an important influence on societal values and therefore on people's attitudes and behaviours related to the issues we care about, whether that's refugees, the environment, global poverty. And I think that's reason enough to uh, focus on engaging intrinsic values and to avoid extrinsic values, but there's another reason too. Like I said, normally when we think about values, we think about them dispositionally. But values don't just act dispositionally. Values can be engaged by the things that we see, hear, or by particular experiences we have. In other words, the values that guide our behaviour in any moment are also driven by context. In fact, there's a growing body of research that's really only taken off in the last few years, literally last six years, which is demonstrating time and again that context can actually be a lot more powerful than disposition in determining which values we draw upon in any particular context, remembering that we all have all 58 values, so it's not like I don't have extrinsic values even though a lot of my choices are made by intrinsic values. Those can also be activated, and that's what we describe as values priming. So values priming is the process of activating a value in someone from anywhere around the circumplex in order to influence how that person subsequently thinks and acts, regardless of their normal values disposition. Values priming has been used to do everything from change people's attitudes to issues like poverty and the environment, to actually influencing people's behaviour, for example, their likelihood to help someone in need or to recycle. It's even been used to both increase and decrease discriminatory behaviour. Now let me show you an example from the research that I've just inserted into the, the slide just uh, before the break. Uh, because we were talking about national identity, I thought this one would be interesting. So this particular study was uh, conducted by a group of academics, including uh, Tim Kasser, who is one of the people who helped establish Common Cause. And what they did is they took US college students and they primed them with identity, uh, America, uh, different types of identity. One, was primed, one group was primed as with a human identity. Another was primed as Missouri students. They were all Missouri students. Another group was primed simply as being American. And then there were two groups. One was primed as being extrinsic American, the other one intrinsic American. And let me tell you, give you an example of the type of extrinsic and intrinsic priming. So the extrinsic group was reminded that the American people are known around the world for their focus on wealth, financial sex, success and material gain. Americans are also known for their competitiveness and for their movie industry with its Hollywood ideals of beauty, celebrity and fame. Whereas the intrinsic prime were told, the American people are known around the world for their generosity and their willingness to pull together in times of need. 
Americans are also known for their ideals of self-expression and personal development and for their strong family values. Then they were asked to recommend an ideal ecological footprint for Americans in five years' time. Now, interestingly, those primed with intrinsic values recommended the lowest ecological footprint. Uh, students, very similar. Humans, very similar. Extrinsic, very similar. But most worryingly, perhaps, those simply being reminded of being an American recommended actually increasing the ecological footprint. So never assume what people mean by being Australian. Now I'm going to take you through one of, uh, another priming study in a sec. But first I want to introduce you to a couple of priming effects that I think are, are worth knowing about. The first is the bleed-over effect. Now because of the bleed-over effect, we know that whenever you activate a value, such as equality within the universalism segment, you also activate nearby values. For example, activating someone's value of cleanliness will also strongly activate nearby values such as social order, family security and health within the security segment, but also activate to a lesser degree values in neighbouring segments, power and conformity and maybe tradition. The second effect of values priming is the seesaw effect, because the seesaw effect, we know that when any value is activated, not only do you activate nearby values, neighbouring values, but you also serve to weaken opposing values. For example, activating someone's value of social recognition is not only going to strengthen nearby values, but also weaken concern for opposing values, including a world of beauty, equality, and broad-mindedness. Think about this in terms of the values you're engaging when you're talking about your issues. Now, one of the questions we often get at Common Cause is this. It's all fine and well to talk about us engaging intrinsic values and avoiding extrinsic values, but what if we're trying to deal with really extrinsically orientated people? Can we actually engage them with intrinsic values? So we decided to put this to the test, to do a priming study that pushed priming to its absolute limits. From a group of 700 adults, we selected the 10% on the 10 most extrinsically orientated. They were all surveyed on their values. Then we randomly assigned them to two groups. They either were asked to write about popularity, image and wealth, extrinsic values, or acceptance, affiliation, and being broad-minded, intrinsic values. Now, we were also testing the bleed-over effect here, because you'll notice that there was no mention of social or environmental issues in terms of the values we primed. Participants were then interviewed about the environment at the local level and the global level, and poverty at the local level and the global level. Then we sent transcripts of those interviews to a trained linguist, a very experienced linguist, uh, fluent in values, and who was totally blind to the study. They didn't know the priming conditions that we'd applied. And we asked that, that person to look at the extent to which people in those transcripts expressed concern about the environment and poverty, the extent to which they felt obliged to act to solve the problems, but also the values that they reflected in the language that they used. And those primed intrinsically, we found, were more concerned about the environment and poverty, felt more obliged to act to solve the problems, but also interestingly, express their concern using intrinsic values. So I want to bring this home by giving you a couple of quotes from these people. So here is an incredibly extrinsically orientated person, top 10%, so think of the most extrinsically orientated person you know. This person is then primed with extrinsic values further. And talking about kids dying, 
I don't really feel much for it, you know. In a lot of ways, it's, it's part of life over there. It's a way of life. That's what happens, so it's nothing to get too upset about. Now, here is an equally extrinsically orientated person, equally extrinsically orientated, this time primed with broad-mindedness and other non-poverty-related values. Um, and I think it's really unfair, the injustice of how some people have loads and other people have absolutely nothing, and yeah, it's terrible. This person is hardly getting on a plane to Africa to save starving babies. But the difference between thinking that kids dying in developing countries was nothing to get too upset about to thinking it's terrible is stark. And these aren't just cherry-picked quotes. This reflects the general tenor of the difference that we saw. So how do values, how does all this apply in practice? Well, what are the values being engaged in the asylum seeker debate in Australia? If you look at the key frames, they're around things like security, protecting our national borders and maintaining social order. We can't have people arriving in Australia without proper screening, can we? They're around legality. Asylum seekers are framed as people who don't respect our laws, our tradition, our values. They're not like us. And a lot of the frames are around authority and power. We decide who comes to this country and the manner in which they do. And also wealth within the power segment. Asylum seekers are framed as economic migrants who are here to take advantage of our welfare system. They're not genuine refugees or, contradictorily, they're here to take our jobs. Now, if we want to engage intrinsic values in people when we're talking about this issue, we need to start thinking about frames that tap into those intrinsic values. Now, disappointingly, I'm not here to present to you what those frames are. That is research that needs to happen. It's not something you can just pluck out of the air. I'm hoping that Alex might be able to point the way a little bit in terms of this, and I've left the framing stuff to him. But I would say the type of frames that we should be looking for are frames that activate intrinsic values. So values like freedom, choosing our own goals, self-direction, broad-mindedness, equality and social justice, and perhaps freedom, oh, sorry, friendship, love, helpfulness, forgiveness. All intrinsic values, all resonant in Australia. So what does this mean you can do? Well, the first thing is to understand how values work. A lot of value stuff is incredibly intuitive. When I presented the map, you probably looked at the values and thought, yeah, that makes sense to me. But there's elements of values that are also counterintuitive. For example, appealing to intrinsic values, using intrinsic values to appeal to an extrinsically orientated person. It's something that people tend to be very resistant to accepting that that is possible. And the study I showed you is one. We've also done others. And every time we see intrinsic values being more effective, not just on those who are intrinsically orientated, but also those who are extrinsically orientated. So understand how values work. Secondly, values proof your work. So that means whenever you are doing your fundraising, your campaigning, your communications, your engagement with decision makers, engage intrinsic values and avoid engaging extrinsic values, including through your choice of frames. And whatever you do, don't mix values. It's just as ineffective as using extrinsic values, other studies have shown. And finally, and perhaps most challengingly, and I won't go on about this a lot, is to collaborate on common causes. Think about, think beyond asylum seekers and refugees. Because at the end of the day, the values that dominate Australian society are the values that will determine our attitudes and behaviours to the asylum seeker debate, to poverty, to the environment. 
That's why we call it common cause, because we're actually all here to engage the same values in society. So perhaps that means coming together with other organisations working on other issues and thinking, how do we best engage intrinsic values in Australians? And how do we work to weaken the forces for extrinsic values, things like our commercial marketing to children? Now, if you're interested to learn more about Common Cause uh, and all the science behind it, you can download our free Common Cause handbook, which is available from our website. And you can also sign up to our mailing list so that you can be notified of new research, which is happening all the time, but also of upcoming workshops. So we had uh, a workshop coming up in Sydney next week, which unfortunately is sold out, but there's another one coming up in early September. That's it. Mark, that was wonderful. I'm just going to introduce um, Alex again. Alex now has two big problems to pluck the answers out of, <laughs> out of the sky, challenges Mark's thrown at him. Um, were you going to come here? And... Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, I love that we do where we look at values and we look at social narratives and so on is being brave enough to do things like to actually challenge the idea that perhaps an entire sector called aid and development um, does, um, is poorly named and does reflect a patronising and historically now irrelevant set of values and being brave enough to change that. And, uh, and so I think this is a really valuable, uh, a valuable set of tools and a, and a valuable approach. Um, I guess I should introduce myself. I'm here today with myself and my colleague, uh, SJ, who's sitting over there. And uh, we work in an organisation called Frankly. And um, I guess we do a lot of research and uh, we also do a lot of campaign strategy. And we'll probably spend today talking a little bit more about some of the strategic kind of ideas, I suppose, that have come out of the work that uh, we've done over the years. And I guess what would be relevant would be to, to give some, some background uh, about that. So I used to be a, a manager at um, a Labour Party polling company and, uh, and for various reasons, I spent quite a lot of time in that company and we did some useful things like help name the Clean Energy Act and, uh, and a whole lot of other useful campaign work. And, uh, and then I moved on from that company and began working with some of the people who I'm working with now. And uh, we've spent quite a few years being, uh, I suppose, consultants to the Australian Greens is a, is a simple description of it. And in that, of course, of that work, um, we were the first group of people that the Greens had, had ever hired to do focus group work and, uh, and also to do polling and to use those research tools in the context of electoral strategy and uh, targeting of seats and so on, but also in the context of trying to figure out how to challenge some of the, the popular narratives and conservative discourses which are embedding themselves in this country, of which refugees would have to be one of the most challenging and unfortunate. Um, and so I guess the emphasis on, uh, on what we'll talk about uh, today is um, about narrative and about story, and it uh, was very heartening uh, to, to see last night, uh, people who are here today talking about discourse and indeed just how much of the, uh, of the conversation today has been about story and about discourse. And, uh, and I suppose we see values as being a, a conversation about values that we've just had, very interesting. We see values as being primed through, through discourse and, and through narrative 
and that in fact um, people's views are quite pliable and malleable and, uh, and in fact the, the contestation for the management and uh, for the control of public discourse is a very important thing. And I suppose one of the insights that we'll, uh, that we'll try and, uh, and, and draw your attention to today is the way in which conservatives are really active in, in narrativizing and controlling public discourse because they recognize its relationship to social power and getting to people what, to do what you want them to do. And um, but that's quite a, that's a long, that's not what I have here on my introductory notes, so forgive that, uh, forgive that segue. Thank you for having us here, as I'm sure on the list as well. Um, so quickly, what we'll, uh, what we'll talk about today is, uh, is stories and social change and, uh, and key movements in, uh, in conservative refugee narrative, and I guess insights into the conservative strategy. It's a pretty well-evolved strategy. It's pretty well thought out. There's an awful lot of technique applied to it. And, uh, and then to recap and consider where to from here, given uh, some of those learnings. And I suppose one of the first things, uh, we use story, the term story and narrative interchangeably. And uh, there's a reason for that, which is that a lot of people don't understand what you mean by narrative. But, um, and typically, when, uh, when I'm doing a talk like this, I would make it pretty clear that, um, that our strategic bent is, is toward uh, narrative, as in the big social story. And, uh, and part of that, and the way of reinforcing that narrative, is, is personal stories, and, uh, or personal narratives. And in the context of refugees, there's probably no other social topic where that's actually, no other topic where that's actually quite so salient. Those personal stories are so fundamental. But I suppose, to, to be clear, what we're talking about is this notion of the big story in society. And uh, we, um, Mark mentioned frames and, uh, and, and values, and, and so we've been working with frames and talking about values for many years. And one of the reasons why we've come back to this, this notion of stories, or this very simple idea of stories, is that um, the story I tell about it is we went to, uh, we went to a Pacific uh, country or a Melanesian country, in fact, to convene some training over some days with uh, people from a range of organisations from, from across the Pacific. And one of the things that we had to do was to talk about framing, which is this idea which comes from George Lakoff, who we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, briefly uh, a few slides down the track. And framing's kind of a quite difficult concept to get across. What exactly does it mean? And so we thought, well, how we'll get, about, get around this is um, we'll spend the first day chatting with people and designing the workshop in a collaborative way so that, you know, frame is difficult in your first language, let alone in your fourth. And, uh, and of course, there are people speaking many languages from many cultures uh, at, this, uh, at this session. And what we discovered as we were designing this workshop is, in fact, there is a common communication strategy and a common language that you can use all around the world, which is really simple and really engaging. And it works in between organisations, between countries, between cultures. You know, if you work at an organisation, say, or if you work in, a, in, um, in an academic discipline, for example, where there's a particular mode of communications operating, or say if you work in the public affairs branch of an organisation and there's the marketing people over there and there's the campaigns people over there and there's the research people over there, they all have different modes of, uh, of communications method operating. Whereas, in fact, you can bring them all together onto the same page using this really simple idea, which is very old, and, uh, and which is stories, basically. And so um, we've, we learned a great deal from that, and it's made our job way, way easier, and we've learned a lot too. <laughs> we, keep, we keep learning, and it's a nice dynamic way to learn. And, uh, and so for, I suppose for the sake of getting people on the same page 
in that which is really important in the context of a, of a challenge, I suppose, that advocates for refugees face, we think that stories is a good conceptual tool uh, to work from. And so stories and social change, we'll first talk about some of the elements of why stories are powerful. I mean, our, our understanding of the world is shaped through stories and uh, there's been some mention of linguists and so on. And uh, indeed, that, uh, that is really quite fundamental. And that I actually missed a really key point on the previous slide, which I'll go back to, this one here. The insights into the conservative strategy number three. Um, the, we think that the key trends that you can discern from, uh, from conservative strategy about, uh, about refugees are, first of all, um, they narrativise really consistently, really precisely and really effectively. And what they tend to do in that narrative is remove refugees from the discourse. So they actually, you'll find that very rarely will they talk about refugees. And they also tend to have a habit of breaking empathy. Uh, so they're constantly using devices to break the empathy, which is, speaks to that universal space of universal values Mark was talking about. They're constantly breaking empathy with refugees and using various devices to do that. And we'll, uh, we'll make some reference to those. And I suppose, um, there, this idea that, that, uh, that there's a contest to evoke different sets of values. The whole Liberal Party machine goes out targeted, at least uh, as, as it is under the Abbott government, um, obviously Malcolm Turnbull, quite a different proposition, goes out to marginal seats with a specific set of values they want to prime, knowing that if they can do that within a specific cohort with range across a range of marginal seats in this country, they can win power and government and their strategy is geared to that, it's very precise. And uh, I suppose understanding that strategic background and also those tools that they use, particularly around breaking empathy with refugees and removing refugees from the discourse, really fundamental, and we'll try and demonstrate that very quickly in 20 minutes. Um, so our understanding of the world shaped through stories, personal stories, as well as those big stories or narratives. And those stories and narratives, they don't just track social change and morality and public opinion. They're actually at its heart. Meaning is created through narrative, not through a process of reasoning. Meaning historically, in fact, comes through stories, and this is one of the things that linguistics and cognitive science has, has shown us. And that, of course, persuasion and emotion is also embedded in stories. And so it's really important when talking with an audience where there are a lot of people, I'm pretty sure I used to, used to teach a few classes in international law myself, and that where the, where you have a legalistic discourse, it's very rationalist, whereas in fact, persuasion works through emotion and story. And so there's something to manage there and to be strategic about there. Um, stories make the world go round. A couple of examples. Gandhi and the, the national independence movement in, in India, they purchased printing presses in order to tell the story of marching to make salt. Very, very purposeful. Very, very purposeful approach to narrative and social change. We will change through changing the story that is in people's heads and the content and values therein. Likewise, it's nice when, the, when there's a confluence between our presentations. If you look at the civil rights movement in the United States, um, and one of the things going on with that is that uh, very much about asserting humanity, very much about asserting the, the, the rights, but also this very Rights and, and equality is a quite a rationalistic frame on one level. We'd go, go even higher to the empathy. It's about people's humanity. It's about people's dignity. 
that's a much more feeling and persuasive space in which to work and to gear your campaigns to. And so we'd go, so this is very much about asserting people's humanity. And what they did in telling the story was they interviewed people. They interviewed who would be doing the campaigning because they knew that the people delivering the story were crucial and that it was actually a process of cultural production and storytelling that was at the heart of their movement and the heart of their success. And one of the things that we want to draw your attention to with regard to uh, campaigning around refugees is there's plenty of people here talking about narrative, there's plenty of people talking about discourse and analysing it and the values and so on that are part of it, but one of the things we want to draw your attention to is to what extent do we as a movement collaborate to A, contest conservative narratives and B, tell our own story in a very dynamic, very collaborative and very deliberative way. And, and we would say that that is essential in order to achieve any kind of success. Because in fact, one of the things that you'll find in, uh, that we have found certainly in our research is that the values of this country are actually quite progressive. And that what has happened over the last 25 years is that there's a cohort of people who are in control of discourse in this country and, and much more strategic about it, and they're shifting values over to the right. But I go and run focus groups with, the, with Australians in every community you can imagine all the time and have done so for many, many years. And the public's values are actually pretty progressive. You can prime them to go to the right. To be sure, you can prime them to go to all sorts of very unpleasant places. But actually, the bedrock of this society's values are about egalitarian and, and quite egalitarian, quite, quite sort of fair-oriented, but ultimately quite caring as well. But they can be primed to go in other directions because, of course, we have... Uh, if you, look at, uh, if you look at Aboriginal history, for example, in this country, clearly there are, there are differing tendencies in the, in the values in this country historically. And so if you look at stories and social power, um, there's all sorts of people who write about narrative and post-structuralism, some of them from the left and some of them from the right. But uh, what they have in common is they recognise the relationship between narrative and social power and that it's really quite fundamental and so if you want a lot of social power, if you want to persuade people about your values, then uh, typically people start buying newspapers. Um, so what are some of the key moments in conservative refugee narrative? Um, we do a thing, and it was pretty interesting. Saw some of it on the telly last night, actually. Flicked it on in the hotel room. And uh, sure enough, uh, I've forgotten the show because I don't normally watch it, but um, what's it called? Uh, Someone else here must have seen it, where they, uh, they did a bit of periodised discourse analysis for refugees. Did anyone else see that? No. Well, it was on prime time on SBS or ABC. Sorry? Yes, that, that's, it, that's it. And, uh, and so we'll do a little bit of periodised discourse analysis here. So how does the story work in different eras? And, uh, and typically, you know, it's not a coincidence that the story uh, is working a particular way in a particular era. Someone's telling it. Someone's investing money and time, and, uh, and energy, and shaping the discourse in the way they want to. And uh, for various reasons, uh, the, Liberal, the Liberal Party in this country, and particularly Crosby and Texter more specifically, like the Conservative branch of the Liberal Party, have invested an enormous amount of time and money in controlling refugee discourse. And the reason they do it is because they know that that is how you win soft Labour voters in key marginal seats. It's one of the ways they can win a certain percentage of soft Labour voters. And so there's a huge investment in doing it. So some of the key moments in, uh, in conservative narrative discourse. Well, 
I guess prior to them getting really active in managing it, certainly prior to people like Crosby and Texter, you had uh, the Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees arriving in boats in the 70s. It was quite an international story. People understood that it wasn't sort of hemmed in in a, in a very nationalist discourse as it is now. And, uh, and indeed, that nationalist discourse, wrong way, go back. We should discuss that some more. But we would say to you that all of that breaking empathy with refugees happens within a nationalist discourse. And this was a much, much safer place from the point of view of empathy and human rights, the United Nations and the institutions of democracy that we like. Um, so this was a good place and refugees were welcomed. And uh, if you move on, the Tampa affair, and there's obviously plenty of things happened in, in the interim, uh, the Labour Party for whatever reasons, which are interesting ones, set up the detention system and so on in the interim. But one of the things you see in the Tampa affair is how it exploits the situation to break empathy with refugees. And the rhetoric's very similar to that of queue jumpers. And there was a question, uh, we'll come back to it. The, if you look at the language, they're talking about what sort of people throw their children into the water. I don't want people like that in Australia. Genuine refugees don't do that. And Beasley, of course, never challenged that framing, sort of jumped on board with it. Well, I don't think it's unhumanitarian to deter criminals. And you can see the Labour Party is continuing down that track, even if the narrative is perhaps more focused on people smugglers, uh, more exclusively focused on people smugglers than it was. And one of the things that's going on um, here is that when you have this discourse about genuine and not genuine and, and queue jumpers, well, first of all, I guess quickly about queue jumpers. What's actually being evoked with queue jumpers in our view is there's an element of fairness going on, but what is actually, a queue has rules. And what is going on is that they're evoking the emotion which says those people are breaking the rules, which is different from evoking the, evoking the emotion which says we have universal empathy and we care for refugees. Queue jumping is all about saying those people don't share our values, they're breaking the rules, they're trying to gain unfair advantage. And it's appealing to people's idea of rules and hierarchy and laws, for, the, for that matter, um, over their idea of empathy. And, uh, and that is why, in our view, that language was used in the way and is used in the way that it is. Um, naturally, we're extremely disappointed that the Labour Party should uh, continue to capitulate to that discourse. You know, it's a, queue jumping is a very parochial and narrow definition of rules and laws. What about the ones of the, our international institutions that are about um, empathy and universal human rights? It's incredibly narrow and it's incredibly irresponsible from my point of view as someone who worked in you know, a Labour Party polling company where the, the president of the uh, Labour Party was my CEO and former presidents were on our board. I think it's extraordinarily immoral and I am ashamed to be associated with what they're doing, with what they're doing now and then. But um, this trend of removing refugees from the narrative, which is indeed the conservative uh, point of view or the conservative strategy, we think that uh, what you saw around Tampa was that liberals began to deploy language in a much more strategic way in shaping the narrative. And you can see they become far more deliberate. And indeed, there's a particular firm that does this work that's been instrumental in that change, and I've already mentioned their name, and I've indeed begun to write about them publicly in The Guardian and so on. And one of the things that they do is they're very particular about the use of language, 
and they focus group it, and I guess that's what I do for a living as well, so I understand how they do it, and I think it's important to be transparent about the tools and say that these things can be used for good, or indeed they can be used to manipulate public discourse in a very insidious way to gain the electoral power. And I think that's what the, the, uh, I think that's what the conservatives are doing. But what they, they do is they take the old frame boat people and you split it in half. And this is literally expunging refugees from the narrative. So on the one hand, you go stop the boats, and you make that a narrative anchor for your campaign. So it's all about stopping boats. And on the other hand, you go, you take the people word, and you go people smugglers, and you demonise them. And so in doing so, you construct a new narrative about stopping boats and people smugglers, and somehow whew, refugees disappear from your discourse. It's great. But then one of the things you begin to encounter is that they're very active in storytelling. And of course, we're doing focus groups and election campaign design and figuring this out when these things happen. And so we go, how on earth do we respond to this? How do we understand this? And one of the things that happens with saving lives at sea is that like, one of the things conservatives will do is they'll take a moral high ground. Carl Rove in the United States, they'll take the moral high ground. And they've done this here incredibly successfully those punitive policies became problematic and being seen as being punitive and punishing Q-jumpers became too problematic for them, too much of a risk. And so they began to recast themselves as humanitarian. And in this rescue scenario, the government, it's a story. The government are the heroes and the people smugglers are the villains. And refugees, they're kind of there, their lives are being saved, but at the same time, they're literally being hidden and expunged from the narrative and locked up. And I suppose, um, offshore processing, you can see how the story works. And it's kind of dishonest. But um, we're trying to draw your attention to the fact that it's actually a very deliberate storytelling strategy. And they're really good at it. And so with sovereign borders, <coughs> Australia's at war with little wooden boats and foreign criminals and so on. And this security narrative, or this narrative about securitisation, which is, uh, was mentioned on the television last night, as well as being mentioned here, um, it's not about evoking care for refugees. And we think one of the most simple anchors that you can use in all of this is the idea of evoking care for refugees, or empathy for refugees. If you hold on that point of evoking care for refugees, then that's a... That's an, that's an important uh, place because obviously that's, you know, that crosses borders. It's not about the nation, state and sovereign, this and that and so on. It's actually about values which are indeed embedded in our community. But Labor buys into that uh, punitive policy and misleadingly framed as saving lives. You know, I mean, I kind of... I might sound quite passionate in my, in my work sometimes, but actually... Um, we spend most of our time being as exacting and we, as we can and stepping, stepping back and, uh, and, I suppose, looking at it from a very strategic point of view. And indeed, people don't come to you and employ you to do this kind of work if you impose your own point of view on the analysis. Um, you, you have to try and be balanced, but at the same time try and be balanced within this context of what you know is a very dynamic political argument, not one where it's always about truth. Um, clearly, and but what we would say to you with the with the saving lives device, and uh, is that you know, like 
I come from a refugee family, so I segue away from the science ago. I come from a refugee family, you know, a Jewish refugee family, as it happens. And I know perfectly well that, you know, what was written on the gates of Auschwitz was, you know, uh, work sets you free. And, uh, and these guys use similar techniques. And it's particularly odious, and I think it deserves to be called for what it is. Um, so, insights into the conservative strategy. One of the first things that you figure out, and uh, someone in Sydney said to me once upon a time, some years ago, you sound like you should be reading this book. And, and I picked it up, and it's pretty much changed the way we work. And uh, it's really, it's a, very, uh, it's a very accessible read and a very good way into understanding how story and narrative is pretty fundamental if, in, uh, I suppose, in holding social democracy together. It's kind of a handbook that says, if you want to live in a social democracy with a mixed economy where we're nice to each other, Here's a handbook to apply some tools to try and hold on to it, because for whatever reasons, it seems to be under threat. And, uh, but I suppose one of the things that you need to understand is this conservative, or it's important for us to be cognizant of, is this conservative storytelling stuff. There's an investment in it, and it's happened over a generation, and it's uh, certainly not just happening in this country. And uh, it's happening, uh, actually, one of the things, too, if I bother to glance at the notes, um, what I would say in reference to the conversation that's happening before about priming is that um, what Lakov is pointing to here is that in the United States there is one massive conservative priming exercise. And this is precisely what the particular strategists within... And the Labour Party does not have this culture. The Labour Party doesn't have the apparatus to respond to this culture effectively. And that this is one of the reasons why they're kind of in the situation that they're in, leaving aside what their views might be. But conservatives do have a very evolved culture of messaging and a very, you know, when they sit down and design election campaigns, there's plenty of people, uh, there's plenty of people from the best advertising agencies, and it's a much more collaborative arrangement often than a progressive, uh, than a progressive campaign might be. And so part of the things is there's this international culture of uh, storytelling going on. And indeed, George Lakov is an eminent intellectual in the United States and, you know, closely linked with the Democratic Party. And his mission over there has been to, um, I suppose, bring the Democratic Party up to speed with those tools. And, uh, and you can see there's, there's certainly an international market going on in the ideas for refugee campaigns. And, um, and so that's part of the... That's part of understanding the conservative situation as well. And, uh, and one of the things too is that, and this is a really interesting question, is that in Australia, refugee narrative is actually part of a bigger conservative story as we read it. And, uh, and this is a quite particular reading, I must say. And, uh, but one of the things you see is that before elections, um, refugees, when you're sitting in focus groups, um, people in Western Australia or in Southern Queensland or in uh, Western Sydney, for that matter, in these marginal seats, people, what's being activated uh, when you're talking about refugees, they're not sort of, like, I haven't done so much stuff lately on saving lives, but what's really being activated is the sense of why are they getting in here and taking our jobs and money? You know, it's a pretty straightforward austerity message that's going on. It's a pretty old-fashioned message about why these people might be a threat. So refugees is kind of marketed as austerity. The carbon tax is also kind of marketed as austerity. It kind of says, well, it's going to hurt your hip pocket. You know, it's, on the, it's back on the pages of the newspaper again, power bills. 
So that's being marketed as austerity. And then you kind of win office and then you have the difficulty of marketing the real austerity. And so that's a particular kind of story analysis. But I suppose one of the things that you see in it is that we end up with this really big story about refugees and it's actually not about refugees in some respects. And this is quite a controversial thing to say. And, uh, and I'm not quite sure and I'm curious to hear people's views about how we deal with this. And, uh, and I've, indeed, I've discussed it with various colleagues in various situations. And because, like, the Conservatives aren't interested in evoking care about refugees, and we know that numerically this isn't a particularly uh, significant part of our immigration, so why do we have this massive spectacle about refugees? Well, it's kind of because, well, it's not kind of, it is indeed a matter of fact that in this scenario, refugees are being used as a tool by liberal strategists, and it's happening for almost a generation now. And that's one of the interesting questions, is we can embed ourselves in this story and, and this challenge around how to advocate for refugees, but actually, this discourse in Australia doesn't really tie in that well in some ways with the global refugee problem. Now, we would never for a moment suggest that this dilutes the importance of advocating for refugees, but at the same time, we do think that it's an interesting question for this society that if the Conservative Party in this country has been manipulating public discourse for almost a generation in this way, how do we name that? And how do we call them on that? Because, of course, it is improper and it's not in keeping with the values of a democracy. So I think it is incumbent upon us to actually name it. And uh, how we do that is an interesting question. Many people will say to you, that is not a palatable message, or indeed they might disagree with you. But um, I think there's a growing body of evidence that actually that is precisely what they're doing, and, uh, and that we should, uh, we should consider how to deal with it. And it, it certainly, I think that one of the things about that if you connect it to, if, you, if there's what's going on in Australia and you begin to see sort of race conflict on our streets, as, uh, as you did last weekend, one of the things about these, the, the strategists that are working on this campaign as a pain in Australia is they're doing it in Europe, in places where these things have very real and very dire consequences when you begin to have race conflict in Europe. You have enormous social responsibility to address what it is they're doing, and they're doing it for electoral gain. But um, it's an interesting question about how, how we address that. And, uh, and I don't think it's talked about coherently enough as that. And so how, a little bit more about how that conservative story works, and we'll move quickly to, to wrap up. Um, there's a constant storytelling process going on about us and them, Team Australia and the others, deserving and undeserving, inclusion, exclusion, authentic, not authentic, authority over empathy. And that's, we would say, cue jumping is all about authority over empathy and rules over compassion, and those seeking what they don't deserve, inclusion into Team Australia. And at this point that we would say, well, there's a text here called um, What's the Matter with Kansas, which is another very you know, New York Times-style text from the United States by a guy called Thomas Frank. And, uh, and I recommend you have a read of that. And, uh, and that's you know, embedded in the Democratic Party narrative in the United States, and it's all about this inclusion and authenticity and exclusion and so on. But in the context of how the, the Conservatives still talk, tell stories, one of the things that we would say is that the phrase asylum seekers 
is heinous. It is a disaster for this social movement, and that's a really strong position to take, and, uh, but like, you will at least remember what I've said. And, uh, because one of the things that the conservatives are always doing is depicting refugees and, and within queue jumping and so on and people smuggling as being opportunistic, as being economic migrants, when we know this is a microscopic proportion of the people coming here. And they're constantly doing this and depicting them as being, I suppose, inauthentic and not genuine. And so if you use the phrase asylum seekers, and I would also question the use of the phrase genuine, because it evokes the, the, the idea of whether or not refugees are real. And this is precisely what the conservative strategy is all about, questioning the reality of refugees in general, even if it is to win some marginal seats. So we would say to you that actually one of the challenges for the sector is to step away from some of the more bureaucratic determinations and recognise that from a communications point of view, your front foot would actually be about refugees and embracing refugees and all the positive emotions that come with that. And that why would you sully your story with what in Western Sydney is a language that people wouldn't understand? What is an asylum seeker? It's very bureaucratic language and what, uh, when you read people like Frank Luntz, who's a, you know, some of the conservative language strategists, they call it weasel words. You know, it's bureaucratic and it doesn't actually serve our ends in any way. And the usual pushback with that is to say, well, it's important to get those categories right. It's important to be, you know, what about the rule of law here? It's like, well, what about if 95% of the people you're advocating for is refugees? So your meta-category then would be refugees. And why would you muddle it up with something that walks right into a very, very dangerous and pernicious conservative trap? We would say, that's probably a mistake. Let's change that habit. And so one of the things we would note about, about, about Tony Abbott, and like, they're quite textbook, right? This isn't us imagining stuff. If you look at how things operate with Margaret Thatcher and so on, if you look at how the kinds of strategies they use with discourse and storytelling, totally popular authoritarian. It's exactly what it is. It's all about rules and empathy and posing as heroes while systematically dehumanizing groups of people for your political purposes, you know? It's, there's nothing particularly new in this, unfortunately. It is unpleasant and old news. And um, one of my colleagues had in here that um, some notes so that there will be some jokes in this very serious presentation. I'm not sure about this joke, but we'll roll with it anyway. One of them pointed out that, you know, that, that Putin wouldn't need a team. And <laughs> Tony Abbott would be about Team Australia, that Putin wouldn't need a team except for when he was harpooning whales. It's like, okay. <laughs> but, um, so I suppose the point of, uh, of this reference is to say, actually, quite a lot of what they do is quite textbook. They're just really precise about it and have been for a long time. And we should probably consider being equally precise in our response. And so, because, um, you know, we do have, uh, we have morality, we have the institutions of social democracy, we have all of the international institutions uh, of the United Nations and, uh, and all of those things. And we're actually being beaten by, you know, and being well, well beaten, in fact, for almost a generation by a really small group of really dishonest, smart, but unpleasant people. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think we can do a lot better with that. And I think we can be a lot more brave in standing up and holding them to account. 
and I, I have no doubt that there are people here who are, are connected with the Labour Party. Um, that would be the social institution best place to do this in this country. Um, you know, do better. It's a disgrace. You know, it's really quite appalling. But um, if we look at some basic strategy about how to rectify the situation, um, we need a coherent narrative strategy. Clearly, the people we're dealing with um, are all about narrative. And we're quite good at pulling it apart, but we probably need to collaborate more on pulling them together. And I know that, uh, that there are projects uh, going on in that direction, and you know, we're happy to collaborate with those. Um, with a story, and it's a story, you know, it's quite a simple story. And, and one of the things we're very interested in too is, we think it's quite important to name people and hold them to account for their appalling behavior. And so how we do that is an interesting thing. And you know, Stories should operate like a, you know, Dr. Seuss style, should be digestible for an eight-year-old. And part of the story is, you know, if Tony Abbott and the, and, you know, if Tony Abbott and the, um, and Crosby Texter are the onceler, you know, and the, and the Dr. Seuss story, well, you know, a story as simple as that, you sort of need to be able to, to make a call about what's wrong and what's right. And, and if we are so disarmed, we can't make a call about what's wrong and what's right. That should ring alarm bells. Um, and the other thing is, obviously, that story, we think beyond national boundaries is a really good idea. International partners, you know, work on that, really important. A big group of people from around the world saying, this is wrong and this is right, these are our values, here's the story that delivers them. With some narrative anchors like, and branding like Stop the Boats, there's this really common misconception that uh, the Conservatives in this country don't stand for things, that they're just negative. Tony Abbott in the last election campaign rocked up to factory floor after factory floor in an orange vest and said, I stand for this. I stand for making your life better. The idea that they were simply negative in their campaigning kind of misses the point. It's a bit, it misses the point of the fact they're actually speaking to a set of values, a conservative set of values which differ to ours. And so refugees, they're really key. Rules of compassion, duty, or duty of care and moral power. And we do... We quite intentionally combine words like rules and duty, which are quite conservative, with progressive language. And indeed, there's more for us to learn about that and to figure out how we do that. But um, we're quite purposeful in saying, actually, there's a duty of care under the United Nations law to, to do the right thing. And, and indeed, make it a de national debate, perhaps, about the duty of care and whether or not they're conservatives are breaking the rules, because they are. They're breaking the rules. And by their own standards and their own morals, it is despicable. So language really matters. We think asylum seekers crushes our refugee stories. There are loads of people doing really good work telling the stories of refugees, including the, the experiences that people have had with torture and so on. And, and you are obviously you know, a great chunk of those people. That term, that bureaucratic term, asylum seekers, um, I guess we put that out there and look forward to, to discussing it. Um, disarmed. How openly do we address that conservative manipulation of public discourse? It's pretty. Uh, we're we're very keen to hear people's views about that. And I suppose one of the things you do in, um, when you take on the work of uh, advising political parties is you kind of just don't do things publicly. But um, we learned lots in it, and uh, and so we've become a bit more public. And um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So. Yeah.
Um, if people are happy for me to, to just speak from here, I've mostly been asked to just share about a specific project, and I know many of you are working on your own projects, so really just think of us as an example. Um, and I guess particularly an example of, of integrating some of the stuff that Mark talked about. So my name's Chantelle, I'm community organiser with the Sydney Alliance. Um, and those of you who don't know the Alliance, we're a civil society coalition, a non-partisan broad-based coalition. We have 48 member organisations from the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney, Catholic Diocese of Parramatta and Broken Bay to the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union. Uh, to the Cancer Council, Settlement Services, the Jewish Board of Deputies, so an incredibly diverse range of organisations that have decided to work together for the common good um, and on the basic premise that civil society organisations have a critical role to play in our um, community and in shaping the kind of city that we want to live in. And a couple of years ago, we decided that we wanted to work in the area of asylum seekers. We worked specifically on the campaign to uh, persuade the state government to introduce transport concessions for asylum seekers, something I know many of you have been working on and was very, very welcome good news in otherwise bleak times. Um, and also, I was employed to do some attitudinal work. So we've called this campaign Changing the Conversation. Um, basically, our organisations... Many of them have, um, you know, great public statements about asylum seekers and, and are, um, you know, very public about supporting a compassionate stance. But we know that our members run the full gamut of political opinion. They listen to the same radio, they read the same newspapers, um, and by and large, they reflect what the broader community thinks. And so our work, my work, was um, designed to address that gap between what our organisations say and what our people actually think. And so I was asked to, to take on the task using community organising and some other tools of shifting the conversation about asylum seekers inside religious organisations, community organisations and trade unions. Um, and so we've been doing this work for about a year now. Um, and, and when we were working at how we're going to approach it, I guess there was some... Um, emphasis or methodologies that we, we took as our starting point. So one is uh, relational community organising. So that's the methodology of the Sydney Alliance. It, it comes from an international network that we're part of, the, uh, the Industrial Areas Foundation. Um, and essentially there's two things that are important in this context about uh, relational organising. Um, one is that we do this work inside civil society organisations. We think those organisations have a critical role to play and one of the ways we conceive of that is we think of organisations like religious organisations or trade unions as different as they are as mediating institutions. They're places where people gather around common values. They're places where leaders um, and traditions uh, enable people to interpret the world that they're in. And we have an opportunity to use that. Um, on a whole range of issues, including asylum seekers. And the other thing is that if you're going to have a, a, um, a uh, coalition that includes the construction union and the Catholic Church, or the Arab Council and the Jewish Board of Deputies, you have to build some trust, because we're a very diverse organisation, uh, coalition. And so we intentionally build relationships of trust before we take on action. And we do that through some tools like relational meetings, which is basically about people mutually sharing their stories, why they decided to become a priest or a rabbi or a unionist or a community, a community worker. And so we decided we would apply that to what we were doing around asylum seekers, that if we could build trust between, you know, a, a, a communist uh, activist um, and a fairly conservative religious person, we could do it between people in our suburbs and asylum seekers. 
Um, the second thing that we drew from was a really helpful conversation that I had with Mark at the end of last year about common causes stuff and, and particularly the encouragement from Mark to put values and intrinsic values at the centre of what we were doing. And again, we're lucky enough that people in our organisations come together around values. Now, they might interpret those values differently and apply them in a range of ways, but we can take for granted that there's a, a, a set of um, common values that we can, we can work with. Uh, and the third thing was um, we looked a little bit and, you know, just on a very surface level at some writing around the science of debunking and why it's so difficult to, to displace people's myths once they're stuck in their heads. Um, and I guess what we came out of that with was a sense that education was important but it was going to be complementary. That first we had to build trust and it had to be around story and then we would be in a position to be able to answer people's questions and respond to their misconceptions. But we couldn't start by trying to tell people that they were wrong. Um, and so what this has looked like is um, what we call table talks. So gatherings inside our organisations, um, which might be with 12 people, they might be with 120 people. And they might take an hour, or they might take two hours. Um, but basically there's a few key ingredients. We start by setting a tone and, and priming with some values. And if it's in a religious space, that might be through prayer or it might be the, the speaker of it from a community organisation, the president saying some words and why we're here. And then we have a conversation, um, which was really drawn quite directly from Mark's work as well as from community organising. It's a relational conversation where we ask people to talk about their values and we give them a list of intrinsic only values and we ask them to, to pick one that, that speaks to them and to tell a story about why that matters to them. And it has nothing to do with asylum seekers but this is why compassion is important to me or this is why hospitality is important to me. And they have that conversation in small groups and we build some trust and we prime for intrinsic values. Then we have um, two, one or two asylum seekers or refugees, normally current asylum seekers, tell their story in person. And this, I think, touches to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, the, the people seeking refuge as the agents of this work. Um, that's really important to us. One of the principles of community organising is never do for others what they can do for themselves. People can tell their own stories if they want to. Most don't. That is completely understandable. But we have a small pool of people who really passionately want to tell their stories and want to be heard. And we work with them to prepare their stories. Um, and as part of that, we encourage them to highlight an intrinsic value that's important to them. So, you know, we have a young Tamil woman who talks about how um, when her family was, was affected by mob violence, nobody helped her. And how, how now that she's in Australia, if she has, is given the opportunity to stay, she would like to become a nurse to help other people. We have a young man from Afghanistan who talks about, you know, the, the ability to choose your own goals and how being a Hazara in Afghanistan, it's not possible to be educated and remain safe. That his brother was killed because he was a university student. And his dream in Australia is to become educated. Um, we have a, a, a man from Iran who talks about how difficult it is to be honest in Iran if you don't believe in the, the prevailing religion. And so they tell their stories very briefly, five minutes each. And then we move back into a small group. People process what they've heard and they, they their name their questions and concerns. And then we bring in some experts, some of whom are here in the room, people like Lucy Morgan and, and Tanya Jackson-Vaughan, who respond to some of those questions and concerns that have arisen. And then we talk about what we can do. 
So we've done this process with about 450 people across Sydney. Um, we've also uh, provided opportunities for asylum seekers to talk in worship services, and that's reached about 2,500 people um, in places like the North Shore, uh, in Ingedine and Menai, in the Sutherland Shire, um, in the eastern suburbs, and hopefully now moving west. Um, so, you know, it's difficult to evaluate this work, and that's something we're working on. Um, but anecdotally, we've been really happy with the results. Um, we've had leaders and communities tell us that they were scared of having this conversation um, in a place like Ingedine, a stone's throw from Scott Morrison's electorate, um, and were really moved by how much their own community was touched and that 85 people turned up on a rainy Sunday to hear an asylum seeker tell their story. Um, and I guess for us, ultimately, it's about shifting attitudes, but it's also about um, what we would call in community organising building relational power. So the set of personal and public relationships inside an institution that can then lead to action. Um, whether that's the folks at Ingedine going out to settlement services, community kitchen and spending time with asylum seekers, or um, organising those folks to tell the Premier that, that concession cards for, trans for asylum seekers is something that they would support. Um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, um, we want to do more of it. We're only, we only have secured funding till November. Any ideas, let us know. Um, but we do hope that we'll be able to secure some more funding and keep going beyond that. Um, at the moment, the, the hope is to run more conversations in Western Sydney, um, to do more in unions, um, and, um, and to start thinking about now that now that the Bear government has committed transport concessions for asylum seekers, um, how we can harness the energy of those communities uh, to, to do more and to, to make a bigger difference to asylum seekers. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank our speakers, Mark, Alex and Chantel, for gathering um, our own values and our passions and our concerns all up into a coherent frame and inspiring us on how we can move forward. Thanks.